<laughs> Hello, how's it going? How you doing? Hey, where you going? This is Jason Nevermind checking in with uh, another episode of the Creepy Podcast. Yes, a, a presentation of the vampire on a pony network, if you will. Um, if this is your first time here, basically, I just try to find different concepts to run through and read creepypasta, and I, um... The psychology that comes out of me, I have to analyze everything. I, I find it amazing and amusing. So, uh, it's done with love. And, uh, speaking of love, <laughs> this one might get me in some trouble, but, uh, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of, uh, contempt for the, the word Lovecraftian. You know, Lovecraft is a very loved, uh, person, even though he's kind of a racist, but, you know, wrote some cool stuff, which was essentially probably just, like, undercover racist, but, uh, yeah, wrote some good stuff. Um, so, yeah, the whole idea of Lovecraftian, which is just a kind of cutesy, gothy, kind of dark, weird, you know, uh, I find no harm in it, but it seems like it makes a lot of people angry. <laughs> so I figured, uh, why not jump on the Creepypasta site, the creepypastawikia.com, and just put in Lovecraftian and see what happens, and, uh, looks like there's a couple of like really interesting options here Uh, i like where they're going already we've got one called a dead god Ooh, the brooding star the demon tobit of delphia (laughs) a few bad apples oh oh radio silence that's that seems interesting uh let's start with that one we're about to fall down the rabbit hole that is lovecraftian hopefully it will be friendly towards us Radio silence. 36,400,000? That is the expected number of intelligent civilizations in our galaxy, according to Drake's famous equation. For the last 78 years, we have been broadcasting everything about us. Our radio, our television, our history, our greatest discoveries to the rest of the galaxy. We had been shouting our existence at the top of our lungs for the rest of the universe, wondering if we were alone. 36 million civilizations, yet... In almost a century of listening, we haven't heard a thing. We were alone. That was until about five minutes ago. (laughs) The transmission came on. Every transcendental, transcendental, multiple, what? Transmission came on. Every transcendental multiple of hydrogen's frequency that we were listening to. Transcendental harmonics. Things like hydrogen's frequency times pi don't appear in nature, so I knew it had to be artificial. This is over my head. The signal pulsed on and off very quickly with incredibly uniform amplitudes. My initial reaction was that this was some sort of binary transmission. I measured 1,679 pulses in one minute that the transmission was active. After that, the silence resumed. The numbers didn't make any sense at first. They just seemed to be a random jumble of noise. But the pulses were so perfectly uniform, and on a frequency that was always so silent, they had come from an artificial source. I looked over the transmission again, and my heart skipped a beat. 1,679. That was a good year. That was the exact length of the Arecibo message sent out 40 years ago. Is that the the, the record? Because, you know, uh, uh, aliens probably have turntables. But, yeah, we set a record into space. It's pretty cool. Uh, (laughs) I excitedly started arranging the bits in the original 73 by 23 rectangle. I didn't get more than halfway through before my hopes were confirmed. This was the exact same message. The numbers in binary from 1 to 10. The atomic numbers of the elements that make up life. The formulas for our DNA nucleotides. Ooh, I got one right. Someone had been listening to us. 
and wanted us to know they were there. Then it came to me. The original message was transmitted only 40 years ago. That means that life must be at most 20 light years away. A civilization, with, civilization within talking distance. This would revolutionize every field I have ever worked in. Astrophysics, astrobiology, astro... Just, it just cuts off there. <laughs> just, just astro. The signal is beeping again. This time it is slow, deliberate even. It lasts just under five minutes. With a new bit coming in one per second. Though the computers are of course recording it. I start writing them down. Oh, one, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I knew immediately this wasn't the same message as before. My mind races through the possibilities of what this could be. The transmission ends. Having transmitted 248 bits, surely this is too small for a meaningful message. What great message to another civilization can you possibly send with only 240 bits of information? On a computer, the only file that small would be limited to text. Was it possible? Were they really sending a message to us in our own language? Come to think of it, it's not that out of the question. We've been transmitting every language on Earth for the last 70 years. I began to decipher with the first encoding scheme I could think of. A-S-C-I-I, that's B. As I finish piecing together the message, my stomach sinks like an anchor. The words before me answer everything. Be quiet or they will hear you. <laughs> it's a little Lovecrafting, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of, kind of fun. Not mad at that. I don't know what this thing is. The I think I've read that one already. <laughs> All right. The disappearance of Ashley, comma Kansas. So, oh, okay. I guess it's a town. All right. It's like who's Ashley, Kansas? Sometime during the night of August 16th, 1952, the small town of Ashley, Kansas ceased to exist. At 3.28 a.m. on August 2nd, 17th, 1952, a magnitude 7.9 earthquake was measured by the United States Geological Survey. The earthquake itself was felt throughout the state and most of the Midwest. The epicenter was determined to be directly under Ashley, Kansas. Well, that sucks for them now, doesn't it? <laughs> When state law enforcement arrived at what should have been the outskirts of the farming community, they found a smoldering, burning fissure in the earth, measuring 1,000 yards in length and approximately 500 yards in width. The depth of the fissure was never determined. Fissure. Okay. Is that like a... What, uh, never mind. After 12 days, the statewide and local search for the missing 679 residents of Ashley, Kansas, was called off by the Kansas state government at 9.15 on the night of August 29th, 1952. Are you, are you remembering these dates? Because it's going to be a test later. All 679 residents were assumed to be dead. At 2.27 a.m. on August 30th, 1952, a magnitude 7.5 earthquake was measured by the United States Geological Survey. The epicenter was situated under what would be the location of Ashley, Kansas. <sighs> when law enforcement investigated at 5.32 a.m., they reported that the fissure in the earth had closed. In the eight days leading up to the disappearance of the town and its 679 residents, bizarre and unexplainable events were reported by dozens of residents in Ashley, Kansas, and law enforcement from the surrounding area. On the evening of August 8, 1952, at 7.13 p.m., a resident by the name of Gabriel Jonathan reported a strange sight in the sky above Ashley. The town itself, having no official branch of law enforcement, called into the police station of the neighboring town of Hayes. Gabriel reported to be a small black opening in the sky. 
Within the next 15 minutes, the Hayes Police Station became overwhelmed with dozens of phone calls all reporting the same phenomenon. The phenomenon was never investigated by any neighboring communities. A decision was made to send of a trooper to Ashley. A, a decision was made to send of a trooper to Ashley to investigate the matter the following morning. Okay. Um, I, I think I get what they're saying. Here's more time and date. All right. At 7.54 a.m. on the morning of August 9th, 1952, Hayes Police Officer Alan Mace radioed the Hayes Police Station. He reported that despite following the one-way road leading into Ashley, he had become lost. According to his report, the road continued along its normal path, but somehow ended up back in Hayes. Officer Mace went on to investigate the situation, and all members of the team came to the same conclusion. The only road leading into Ashley stopped leading into Ashley but instead led back to Hayes. Okay, <laughs> that's weird. Phone calls continued to pour into the Hayes police station, all reporting that the black opening in the sky continued to grow in size. All callers were advised to remain inside and not travel outside unless absolutely necessary. At 8.17 p.m., Mrs. Elaine Cantor reported her neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Milton, and their two children, Jeffrey and, Jeffrey and Brooke, Jeffrey, missing. According to Mrs. Cantor's phone call, the Miltons attempted to leave town in their family car earlier in the evening. They never returned. Law enforcement officials from Hayes never reported the car or individuals coming up the one-way road. At 7.38... No more dates. Alright. I'm committed. At 7.38 a.m. on the morning of August 10th, 1952... Phone calls from Ashley into the Hayes Police Station reported that the town was in total darkness. The sun had never risen. At 10.15 a.m., at the request of Hayes law enforcement, a helicopter from Topeka, Kansas flew over the region in which Ashley, Kansas stood. The town was never observed from air. Oh, it disappeared, yo. This is getting weird, yo. At 12.43 p.m. on the afternoon of August 11th, 1952, Ms. Phoebe Dan... Danielewski? Oh, come on. Danielewski called into the Hayes police station. She reported that her daughter, Erica, had begun to have conversations with her father, who died three years prior in a drunk driving accident. To add to her concern, Mrs. Ms. Danielewski reported that Erica was attempting to go outside in the dark to join them. Over the course of the next 12 hours, a reported 329 phone calls were placed into the Hayes police station, all describing similar phenomenon with the children of the town. This is getting weird. <laughs> the morning of August 12th, 1952, the situation becomes dire. During the middle of the night, all 217 children in the town of Ashley, Kansas disappeared. A reported 421 phone calls were placed into the Hayes Police Department. Unable to be of any useful assistance, Hayes Laws Enforcement, Hayes Law Enforcement, instructed all callers to remain inside and to avoid any and all attempts at finding the missing children. At 5.19 p.m. on the evening of August 13th, 1952, Ashley elderly man Scott Luntz reported a growing distant fire to the south. According to his description, the fire seemed to turn the distant black into bright red and orange that seemed to extend high into the sky. Throughout the rest of the day, calls continued in stating that the fire, in addition to moving north, now seemed to come out of the black sky. No fire was ever witnessed by any of the neighboring communities or law enforcement officials. Uh, okay. The reports continued until 12.09 a.m. on the morning of August 14th, 1952. 
The last phone call placed by a Mr. Benjamin Endicott reported that the fire in the sky had grown so intense that it began to appear as daytime over the town. The phone call ended abruptly. From the phone call placed by Benjamin Sherman Endicott. This person really thought their names out. Benjamin, just hold on, wait, continued silence. Benjamin, yeah, yeah, I see something. It's to the south. It looks like end phone call. The next phone call would be placed until the following evening. The following is the entire transcript of that final phone call to be received by the Hayes Police Department out of the town of Ashley, Kansas. It was placed at, get ready, 9.46 p.m. on the evening of August 15, 1952. In this recorded phone call, the officer on duty is Officer Peter Welsh. The caller has been identified as Ms. April Foster. Officer Welsh. Hayes Police Department, muffled static. Officer Welsh. Hello? Foster. Yes, yes, hello? Ma'am, who am I speaking with? My name is April. April Foster. Coughs. Please, sir, please help me. What is happening, ma'am? Last night they came back. Ma'am, I'm going to need you to... Last night they came back! And she starts crying. Ma'am, I'm going to need you to calm down and speak clearly. What happened? Who came back? Everyone. Everyone? They all came in the fire. What do you mean, everyone? My son. I saw my son last night. He was walking. He was walking down the street. He was burned. Jesus Christ, he was burned! Ma'am, he died last year. I raised him since he was a baby. It was just me and him. I told him to watch for cars when he rode his bike, but he never wanted to listen. Ma'am, what you're saying isn't making any sense. You said everyone came back? Are you fucking listening to me? Jeez. Everyone! Everyone came back! Everyone who died and went missing their back and they're all looking for us! He said, Mommy, I'm okay now. See, I can walk again. Where are you, Mommy? I want to see you. Ma'am, where are you now? Are you safe? I'm hiding. Just like everyone else. We saw them coming through the fields and some people opened their doors for them. God, the screaming! I don't know what happened to them, but their houses caught fire and then caved in. Well, that's what happened. Um... I have my curtains drawn. I'm hiding in the closet right now and... Silence. Ma'am, is everything okay? Are you all right? Silence. Ma'am? Glass breaking. Oh my God! Ma'am? Something just came in. Muffled cries. Ma'am, stay as quiet as you can. Don't make a sound. Mommy? Mommy? He came inside. Stay absolutely still. Don't leave. Sound of muffled footsteps. Mommy, Mommy, where are you hiding? Stay quiet. Sound of heavy footsteps. Laughter. Laughter, muffled. I found you, Mommy. Indiscernible screaming and noise. Ma'am, ma'am. The following morning at 6.55 a.m., the law enforcement officials of the Hayes Police Department arrived at the location of Ashley, Kansas. A smoldering, smoldering, burning fissure in the earth was all that remained. Whatever, I, I, you know, I feel ignorant. I don't know what a fissure is. I'm going to have to look this one up. <laughs> uh, what's a fissure? Oh, God. All right. That was fairly Lovecraftian. That was pretty, pretty cool. I ain't mad at that. The Creepy Podcast. The Creepy Podcast. The Creepy Podcast. The Creepy. Super Creepy Podcast. Um, I'd like to take this time to, uh, inform you all of something, um... The Vampire and a Pony Network has uh, has music and merchandise uh, on Bandcamp. It is um, www.dj4am letter D letter J number four letter A letter M dot Bandcamp dot com. Uh, that's where you can find recordings by me, by Dope Style Twelve Thirty One, by me as well because I have multiple personalities. 
<laughs> you can get the uh, the Jason Nevermind mixtapes or the DJ 4AM uh, instrumental beat tapes and compilations. Uh, and, you know, I got a ton of bootlegs up there, too, if you're a DJ. I've done a bunch of remix work. Uh, it's all pay what you want, so uh, feel free to grab. If you can't afford it, I, I would like you to have it anyways. And also, uh, we just recently got a merchandise page. Uh, I'm doing hand-dubbed hard-copy cassettes out of my bedroom, basically, for almost every title that I can. So three of them are up right now. You can get the Deep Thoughts with Jade Never, Volume 1 through 3, uh, 90-minute tapes. Uh, number 4 is coming, as well as uh, a ton of other stuff. So, uh, you know, if you would like to check some of that out, please go over to www.dj4am.bandcamp.com and support the Vampire on a Pony Network by buying some music. Yeah. So, where are we with this? The Tale of Robert Elm. I don't know which one of these to read next. They're all, like, so interesting looking all of a sudden. (laughs) Okay, let's get back to it. I think I found a good one. (laughs) This one's called Watch What Happens When I Fall Off My Bed. (laughs) Sometimes when I can't sleep, I roll over, fall off the bed, and into another universe. I'm the kind of person who, during break time from school, work slash, work and slash or university, stays up till early hours of the morn and sleeps until early afternoon. Simply by accident. I'm a night owl. Comma, really. But if I'm lying in bed, lights off, blanket sometimes on, sometimes off, done as much reading for the sake of tiredness as possible and sleep still won't bless me with its gentle relaxing hands for the night. I can pass the time by falling off the bed and I'll be transported through an all-new realm, one that I don't think has been discovered by many others. I'll give you a demonstration. Okay. (laughs) Right now I'm in bed. It's 3 a.m. and I'm on top of the blanket because it's fairly hot tonight. Thankfully the air conditioner is working and it's relatively cool in here. The blanket beneath me is extra soft tonight, cradling me gently. Despite the major comfort I'm feeling right now, I'm wide awake and sleep seems nowhere in sight. So to pass the time, I'm going down to the bottomless darkness that is my bedroom floor. But first, I have to make the correct adjustments. You see, the first time I discovered this new space beneath my floor, my desk chair was facing towards the bed. The trash bin was on the side, directly aligned with the wall beside it, and the middle drawer in my little boy was sticking out two and a half centimeters. The next day, I tidied up my room, and that night I attempted the feet again, only to be met with the cold wood hard floor. It was at this moment, when I was tasting the varnished timber, that I realized that the gateway only popped up when these three objects were in the exact same position as they were on the first night. Don't make me ask what these objects and their positions have to do with opening up a hole in the reality of my bedroom, (laughs) as you would be met with the same answer you'd get if you asked a kitten, only less meowing. Okay. So now, if I ever want to take a trip, all I have to do is set up the chair bin and draw in the correct position, get in bed, wait a few seconds, and then simply fall off the bed. Simple. Yes? So, now here I am, ready to pro- provide you, the reader, with a live commentary on the event of interdimensional travel. I'm lying on my back, all nice and comfy. Sleep nowhere in sight. I roll over to the left, and there's more room on the floor to the left of the bed than the right. I'm now on my stomach. One more turn and I'll be on my way. I turn again, and this time there is no more bed to catch me at the end of the roll. I feel myself quickly plummet 
well past the wood floor would have, have, have met me. Aw, <laughs> past where the floor would have met you. It sounds so friendly. The soft light in my bedroom is quickly left behind me and I'm falling through darkness. This is basically the foyer of this new realm of mine. Succumbing to gravity, looking around this place as I fall is futile. All there is is nothing but darkness surrounding me. This would go on for different lengths of time each night, but I always feels like hours, days, even weeks falling through this desolate space. Ooh, that sucks. <sighs> but it's not always pure darkness. Approaching me now, directly underneath, is a landscape of stars. Within seconds, the field of stars is surrounding me on all sides, and it's a thing of simplistic beauty. Imagine the sense of wonder that you get just gazing at the stars at night from afar, amplified to the point where the sense of wonder is all around you, and you're moving through it, amongst it, all up in it. Uh, the glittering specimens extend for as far as the eye can see, backed by a blanket of intertwining waves of deep blue and black. But alas, like all things, the field of stars ends, and I'm greeted with darkness once again. Soon I'll be landing back on my bed, falling through the roof, and gently resting on my mattress, ready to hit the hay. This is essentially what ha- Hang on, that's not right. I should be in bed by now. The fall is over. That's all there is to it. Why am I still falling? There must be something wrong. Maybe I left the bin a little too askew. I assure you, reader, this has never happened before. Every other time I'm in bed at this point, what could... Oh, no. Oh, Lord, what is that? Dear Christ, there's something approaching me out of the darkness. This is not right at all. Something dreadful has happened. This is all wrong. I could see a massive form coming to meet me. It's a vast figure. I can barely make out the shape. It's getting closer. Slowly but surely. <laughs> Hang on, that cannot be right. Those... Those surely can't be real shapes. Yeah, we're getting, like, super Lovecraftian right here. <laughs> Hang on, that cannot be right. Those, those surely aren't real shapes. Can they? Can forms like that exist? They, they simply can't. What is this ghastly, unspeakable thing that is surely must reside in this realm, this place I should have never tampered with? Christ, it's getting closer. I can feel. I can feel a mounting pressure in my brain. I cannot turn away from this thing in my head. It... A sight like this is impossible, and... Uh, dear God, my brain is dying! Oh, God! Oh, Christ Almighty, the pain, the terror is unfathomable, and the mere sight is too much for my mortal being to comprehend. I can feel it. This thing has a hand, and a hand, and it's reaching for me. It has taken a hold of my mind and is squeezing. The hand has passed through my physical skull and has a hold on my consciousness, and it's destroying me from the inside. The pressure is mounting. God, this is unbearable. No such pain in the universe could surely come close to this. My eyes, I can no longer feel them in my face. I cannot see, yet I know the horror before me. It breaks the barriers of human senses, and I can feel it. All feeling to the rest of my body is gone. This blasphemy to common logic has separated me from my physical self, leaving only my consciousness in its grip. Why? Why would this thing, surely not of our God's creation, do this to me? All sense of sight, sound, touch, taste are gone. Do you have any idea what that's like? I'm completely sensually numb. The only thing I know is this unspeakable horror, horror before me and... Dear Christ Almighty, it's squeezing again! Ah! My senses are gone, but the pain is immense. How is this possible? My mental being is bursting at the seams. Death, blast me now with your release. I cannot stand it. <laughs> That's how it ends. Um, I like that. I like the brain squeezing thing. It's pretty cool, you know. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, that's freaky. That's that's definitely a irrational fear. Falling forever. That's terrible. Ah, yes, yes, quite Lovecraftian. Yes, yes. I'm using the word. I'm using the word. <laughs> oh, we got some. We got some potentially wonderful things here on the creepy pasta wiki site when you put in Lovecraftian. <laughs> Where can we go next? Okay, okay, I'm moving it along. Uh, in Torment, in Torment Part 4, in Torment in Hell. And then there's one called It Was All Yellow. Is it like a Coldplay reference? Or, or got, here's one with a weird name. Marbmachich. Giving it to some Klingon stuff. Hmm. Okay, this one could potentially be pretty good. It's called Mother's Lunches. How could this not be good? <laughs> For 13 years, my life has been a frustrating illusion. No matter how hard I looked or how many times I'd ask, I would never fully understand what was happening around me. I, I, I totally get that. <laughs> Today, I finally have a full picture, and I wish I'd stayed ignorant. Ooh, don't, don't say that. Okay. Let me describe my life to you. My name is Mary Burnham. I'm from a small town in Massachusetts that isn't on any map. It's an old, decrepit, dockside town that was almost completely destroyed by a fire in the 30s and still hasn't completely recovered. Our economy is based almost entirely on fishing, with only a small amount of money coming from tourism. The town makes money off people interested in the shady events of our past. The native townsfolk despise the tourists, but they never say anything. They all need the money. The smell is unimaginable. <laughs> and no matter how long you live here, you never get used to it. The stench of rotting garbage, decaying buildings, and fish fill the air constantly. Ew. I feel as though I might have undersold the fish smell. It's overbearing. Fresh fish, rotting fish, live fish, dead fish. The whole town stinks of fish. It doesn't just come from the dockyards. Every factory in this town and all the local restaurants in this town are completely based on fish. You can imagine, we have a pretty bad problem with stray cats. I've been told that for the most part, I look fairly normal for a teenager girl. A teenager girl. But I wouldn't know. I don't have any friends to compare myself to. The one thing people tell me is abnormal about my face and my eyes. They are larger than normal, glassy, and have a dirty yellow tint to them. My pupils are less like circles and more like straight lines. And I never seem to blink both eyelids at the same time. Apparently, abnormalities like mine were very common back when the old gold processing plant was still active. The factory was allegedly a front for a massive bootlegging outfit, which would explain the constant birth defects around that time. I'm one of the last people in our village to suffer from it. It never felt like I fit in, but I've never been bullied. When people in this town don't like you, they tend to keep it to themselves. Everyone is so introverted, they almost seem lifeless, like zombies. Something about this town makes people act like that. Incredibly cold, downright emotionless. It's like all the life has been sucked out of them. The only person who I know who doesn't act like that is my father. My friends call him Brian. He has never been emotionless. That's the problem. He's a nervous wreck, riddled with anxiety and fear. Yep, uh, I, I, can, I, I, can, I can relate. Growing up, it wasn't rare for me to come home from school to find my father pacing around a perfect circle in the living room, rubbing his hands together and muttering to himself, let me make myself absolutely clear. My father is a wonderful parent, and there's no doubt in my mind that he loves me dearly. And I'm not telling you any of this to disparage him in any way. I never understood why he always seemed so frightened. 
why he would yell at the drop of a hat or why he seemed to break down and hide in his bedroom for hours on end, but I've always been sure he had a good reason. You'll notice I said his bedroom. My mother doesn't sleep in the same bed as my father. Oh, yeah, been there too. He's always told uh, he's always told me she has a rare condition. When I was younger, he used to just say very sick and that she could never come out of the attic. Even as a child, I never thought this made sense, especially since there were eight locks and a metal bar keeping her inside. If she was so sick, why would you need to lock the door? <laughs> Something is afoot. <laughs> Are you intrigued? I am intrigued. Why is mommy locked in the attic? Okay. Mother's sandwiches. At night, I would see strange things that I couldn't make sense of. My father would walk upstairs with a bucket of fish heads. He'd go up to the attic, and I would hear the sounds of struggle, loud banging noises, and some kind of animal growling. Dad never wanted me going near the attic door. Every time I came close, he would yell at me to get away. One day while he was at work and I was homesick, I heard a loud growling noise coming from the attic door. I tried to ignore it, but it grew louder and louder, eventually morphing into some kind of roaring or barking sound. I went up to the attic door, and I knocked on it. Whatever was making the noise let out a roar in response. My curiosity got the better of me. Oh. And I decided to peek through the keyhole. Shouldn't have done it. At first I saw nothing but an empty room. But something jumped up and roared at me. I couldn't get a good look at what it was. Just the eyes. Yellow tinted glassy eyes just like mine. I fell back and screamed. And in response the creature seemed to give out a confused snort. Then the growling stopped. For 13 years I've been alive, I have never gotten to see my mother in person. She has never spoken to me, never hugged me, and sometimes I wonder if she would even recognize my face if she saw me. The only interaction I had with her I've ever had, the only interaction with her that I've ever had came in the form of little lunches she would make for me. The same thing every day. PB and J sandwiches and the crust cut off and a small carton of milk in a paper bag. She would leave these little white cards inside that says, Mother loves you with a little heart right next to it. This has been my life for over a decade, and I was tired of it. I was a smart child, I was well-read, I got good grades, and I didn't like being lied to. I didn't like not knowing things. It was annoying to me to just have to accept something that I knew wasn't right. One day, I'd finally had enough. My father had to leave for work early, leaving me all alone. I was supposed to be heading to school by now, but I had no interest. Today, I was finally going to see my mother in person. I had to know what was hidden behind the door. There were eight locks, keeping the attic door tightly shut, and a metal bar. I highly doubt my father ever thought I'd be smart enough to unlock them, but I did it easily. The hardest part was that metal bar, not because it was complicated to remove, but just because it was so heavy. <coughs> Pardon. But once all the trappings were gone, opening the attic door was easy. There was no light in the attic, and all the windows had been boarded up. There was no light source anywhere. I took a flashlight with me. The attic was sparsely furnished and in a state of serious disrepair. Holes and cracks in the walls, a dripping roof with several buckets laid down to catch falling water, and garbage littered all over the place. What caught my eye was a large pile at the end of the room on top of what appeared to be a cheap air mattress. It was a huge water something covered in a large blanket. I approached it slowly and carefully, tiptoeing the whole way there. My hand shook so badly as I stripped away the blanket, I could barely stifle the scream I almost let out. It was some kind of monster, and the second I removed its covers, it woke up. It shuffled to its feet and stared at me. It was the size of some kind of Bigfoot creature, but it had scales, fins, and webbing all over its body. It looked more like a bipedal fish than a mammal. It had those yellow glassy eyes I saw on everything. That means that dude humped that fish lady thing. 
Um, how, how do you seduce a wild animal? Uh, I let out a loud shriek and ran away. The creature belched out a lazy growl and began to follow after me. Its movements were slow, lumbering, and casual. It was in no hurry to catch me, and I didn't want to imagine what would happen when it did. There was nowhere to hide downstairs. I had to make a mad dash for the kitchen and crawl inside the pantry cabinet. The creature followed behind me. It knew exactly what room I was hiding in. I could hear loud, crashing noises and the sounds of things being shuffled around and falling. I was sure it was looking for me. I began to cry softly to myself, trying my hardest not to even breathe. I opened up the pantry door slightly, knowing it could mean my death. I saw the creature, but it wasn't even close to me. It was digging around inside the refrigerator, knocking things to the floor, making a huge mess. I shut the pantry door and prayed the creature wouldn't kill me. I heard the creature's footsteps barreling toward me. I bit my lower lip, stifled another scream, and hoped it would end quickly. The pantry door was ripped open, and the creature lowered itself directly to my level, looking me right in the eyes. That's when, in a gurgly, growling voice, it spoke to me. Get out of there! I did as the monster said, clumsily stumbling out of the pantry. I turned to face the creature. It lumbered over me, looking right down at me. I was so scared, I was sure it was going to rip me limb from limb, feast on my insides, rip my head off, any number of gruesome scenarios. Instead, it grabbed my hand and placed something inside of it. A brown paper bag. <laughs> In its deep, growling voice, it spoke again. You're gonna be late for school. Get going. The creature shuffled away as I stood there in awe. It stomped its way back up to the stairs and into the attic, slamming the door shut behind it. It was gone, and somehow I was still alive. I looked down at the paper bag again. It gave me and opened it. Inside it was a PB&J sandwich, a small carton of milk, and a little white card. With a shaking hand, I reached down and grabbed it, looking at the writing on it. The writing was sloppy and made in haste, and it said, Mother loves you, with a little heart next to it. <laughs> Mother's lunches. Oh, that was written by... Um, Dr. Bleed, that is a... Yes, I, I, I'm a fan of your moniker. Oh, man. That was hilarious. That... <laughs> Mother's lunches. Delicious, delicious lunches. My goodness. All right. I think we can do one more. And, and what Lovecraftian show would be complete without a fantasy dream horror kind of thing? Um... So this one looks like it might be kind of interesting. It's called, Please Don't Let Me Sleep. To many, sleep is something that just comes and goes. A part of life so ingrained and natural, it just fades into the background, never noticed, never missed. For those who can't find it, however, it's something almost like a wound, an absence of something inside you, a hole that gnaws until the discomfort fades into the back of your mind. Whichever extreme you swing to, oh, the point is that sleep, or lack of it, still remains behind our eyes, deep in the mind, always present, but never closely examined. You don't stop your workday to ponder how exactly it is you breathe, do you? I hope not. You might be crazy, or bored, but the fact that you're alive means you breathe. Isn't that creepy, how your body works without your consent like that? <laughs> that might seem a bit paranoid of me, distrusting something like your own body, but believe me, my own paranoia once went much, much deeper than this. There are things closer to home, deeper, and much more sadistic and powerful. At least when your body fails you, or rebels in its slow-moving but terrible fashion, there are signs, 
a lump under the arm, a bloody splatter in your hand when you sneeze. It's hard to miss something like that twisting in your chest. But what happens when the signs are clear to everyone except for you? What if the fact that you've broken, that you're broken, makes it impossible to see what's wrong with you? Well, that's a pretty good theory. I mean, sure, why not? When your mind wants to fuck with you, it's infinitely more dangerous than some tumor. I may be getting a bit jumbled here. I apologize. Let me go back a bit. Explain how it used to be before I needed to write my thoughts down to keep them from twisting. Oh, this is a bit close to home. Ah, never mind. All right. A year ago, I had been diagnosed with a rather severe case of insomnia. I don't just mean I found it hard to get to sleep. I could go days at a time without so much as nodding off. When I did sleep, it was a short affair, and oddly, I remember nothing prior to, during, or after the four or so hour escape from wakefulness. Well, that's not true. I do remember flashes of images, brief sensations, all tiny pieces that didn't add up to anything when put together and were even less telling on their own. It was like a scene in my memory had been simply torn away, and the motion had rendered the edges ragged and leaving only the most inconsequential, unconsequential scraps of half-thoughts and the beginnings of feelings. Yeah, sounds pretty human. One minute I was riding my bike home from the store, the next I was shaving, and it was dark. My unpacking of groceries, getting settled in bed and waking up and showering were all missing. Oh, you're probably a serial killer, because, you know, like a lot of people black out when they kill people, you know. They wonder why they burn their lasagna. Uh because they left the house and went and murdered somebody and then came back and <laughs> didn't take the lasagna out of the oven. That really happened. Um, I forgot who that was, but I heard about it on Coast to Coast AM once. I don't have a bad memory. It's not photogenic. It's not photogenic. I think that's the wrong word, but I mean, photographic possibly, but photogenic, that means you look good on camera. I, am I wrong? All right. I'm not photogenic, but it's not exactly normal for me to lose hours out of my day. Finally, I saw a doctor, and after a lot of waiting, and an even harder time of trying to make myself sound sane, a shrink finally gave me a curious shrug. It seems I'd stumped him. In his professional opinion, there was nothing wrong with me. Well, nothing that made sense, at least. There was no apparent reason for me to be randomly blacking out like this, but he noted cautiously that there were signs of something else. Post-traumatic stress syndrome. syndrome. Uh-oh, we got the PTSD going on. Yeah, okay. He repeated himself for both our sakes, and we were equally confused over this. PTSD sounded crazy, right? Nothing had happened to me that's kicked my brain into a closet, right? <laughs> Nothing has happened to me that's kicked my brain into a closet? Maybe something could have happened while I was out, but that didn't explain how I got these blackouts in the first place. Almost as confusing, I seemed in good health. Apparently, I was some kind of mutant who didn't require sleep to stay on my feet. The shrink didn't believe me when I told him I'd been awake 113 hours. If he hadn't noticed the surface symptoms of PTSD, I'm, I'm sure he would have taken me seriously. He assured me that I didn't have any kind of, kind of traumatic disorder, and that it must be something else. Impossible to tell like this. I need to see a specialist to get the answers, and so I was scheduled to see someone else. In the meantime, he advised me to keep a diary of my sleeping patterns and wrote me a prescription for some heavy-duty sleeping pills. That's how you get down. And that's how it started, innocently enough. I was relieved that, relieved that answers were coming, slowly, but then something strange happened. On my way to the chemist, I was about to cross the threshold when something suddenly kept my feet in place. You know that sensation when you realize there's a massive drop in front of you and you were just about to blindly step into empty air? It was like that. 
The aisles of the store extended a moment, my mind locked up with a sudden caution. By the time I noticed the employee speaking to me, the prescription had been crushed in my shaking, sweaty hand, and I had been staring into the store like I had just seen something terrible. I shook the cobwebs from my mind and smiled at the woman, now feeling thoroughly embarrassed. She mercifully brushed the incident aside and walked me to the counter. I can't really describe what I was feeling as I paid for the bottle of pills. Something was telling me to leave, and whatever it was, it waited outside the store for me. I didn't want to look back at the tugging, nagging presence, not after my display in front of the clerk, but I felt like its eyes were on my back and I was worried. But I turned around and left and there was nothing there. What was I expecting to see? I laughed and brushed it off. I just needed some sleep. Maybe tonight I'll finally get it. I was being stupid, taking the bottle from the wax paper bag on the escalator. I read the label and couldn't shake that strange presence before I put the bag away in my backpack. I entertained for the briefest second that someone was standing behind me, and I swore as I stepped off the moving platform that I'd just been reaching out to place a hand on my shoulder. Creepy. I took my medications and recorded it in the diary. That first night, nothing happened, and my diary steadily filled with what I'd already been experiencing. A light dinner, take my meds, shower, read in bed for a few hours, finally give up and play some Skyrim until the sun rises and start on my housework. Waste my day away with shopping, bills, maybe see a movie, avoiding caffeine and hitting the gym before finally heading home to repeat the process again. The first eight days of my diary were the same as this, and I started penning down the words, day nine. The diary popped up in my comic book. I strangely felt relieved, folding my legs closer to prop the comic and diary up. I chewed at the end of my pen and tried to pinpoint this feeling. It wasn't the first time a shadow had crossed my mind, like I was accidentally picking up someone else's emotions. Once again, nothing came. As I put the pen back to the page, something scuttled across the edges of my mind. Something akin to a panic? Or maybe, being startled, the hairs in my neck suddenly stood up and I was alert. I heard a sound like an inhalation drowned out by a whisper and I felt my chest clamp down on my lungs. I was laying down. The comic and diary had fallen from my chest, the pen in my fingers, and a thin beam of very weak pink light streamed in from my curtains. Suddenly aware of my surroundings again, I sat up and grabbed lethargically for the alarm clock on my bedside table. It was 4.41 in the morning, just before sunrise. Peering down at the dark, at the clock in the near darkness, waiting for my mind to start working again, I tried to remember the last thing I had done. What time did I, what time had I sat in bed to write the diary? Rubbing my eyes, I, I patted about for the diary and checked the time I had written. It had been two in the afternoon when I began, and I lost consciousness somewhere at that time, but there was a scribbling underneath the date. It was legible. It was definitely my handwriting, and I had to try to form letters, but I had kept on packing together too close or spreading out or scribbling over itself. Whatever I tried to write, I must have a lot on my mind. I couldn't really decide what deserves space on the paper. <laughs> how long have I been trying to write down? How long have I been trying to write after I put d- down the time? Oh, okay. How long have I been, had been trying to write today? Right after I put down the time. A few minutes, an hour. I've been lucid much longer in the past. Okay, so, yeah, I think I'm getting it. All right, sorry. <laughs> Bear with me. As I tried to push out of bed, I found my limbs were sluggish, and the world waved unsteadily as I got on my feet. I felt my way blindly to the bathroom and flipped the light switch, leaning on the counter and splashing water on my face. My eyes were blurry, and my mouth was dry. As the light flickered on, the reflection in the mirror was flashed into my vision like a lens flare. My eyes adjusted to the picture faded away. An image of someone in the bathroom do- door barely remembered, leaving my very tired image slumped over the sink. What the hell had just happened? The next seven days had gone by, much like the first eight, and it seemed my sudden bout of hibernation had only been a fluke. For some reason, I felt grateful for this. 
my energy slowly returned, and I felt that same phantom presence return. With a curious mix of half emotions, it was the same caution from the storefront, but just after my sleep, it had been frantic, impotent, like it was frightened and worried, but could do nothing. As the days went by, I still could not sleep. I relaxed slowly and began to hope. I had stopped pretending this presence didn't exist, and I had started asking her, adding her to the diary. I don't know why, but I saw it as a woman. Maybe it was crazy of me to personify a voice in my head, but she wasn't a voice, really. Did that make it less insane? I couldn't tell. She was starting to grow relieved, and with it, I too felt better. Whatever it was that had worried her, it was passing, and I felt lighter, and now I had accepted her existence. If only as a part of my mind, I tried to remain as detailed as I could. Every night I read over my diary before entering a new page and tried to understand why she existed and what part of me she was an outlet for. To me, this was isolating a sore understanding what it was and keep... To me, this this was isolating a sore... A sore understanding of what... I, I'm not quite sure. Okay, the language is confusing me. <laughs> to me, this was like isolating a sore, understanding what it was and keeping it from spreading while I learned as much as I could. Okay. She must have approved of my approach since whenever I thought like this... She crooned approvingly in my mind, like she was proud of me. On day seven, I started to realize... I started to realize she was guilty for being here, making me question my sanity, and I felt like I owed her my patience. And then it came again. This time, I had been on my computer watching Animal Cops when she fell silent. I know that's difficult to imagine since she can't speak, but I immediately, immediately felt her presence. Sitting up, I felt her claw back into my mind, and she was quickly torn from me. I barely had time to process the screech screeched mental warning when I saw a shadow moving to my left and then I was on the floor. Sixteen hours had passed this time. It was two in the morning. I spent the entire time on my side. My computer chair toppled. Mouse and keyboard scattered. I must have tried to get up and collapsed, falling asleep. My limbs were stiff, sore and weak, and I had not slept well. It seemed tossing and turning on the hard ground. I remembered my dream. That had never happened before. It was hazy, distorted, like it had been partially torn out of me and the stuff back in. But I had one clear, vivid memory of standing over myself where I lay on the floor, breathing slowly, just short of seething through my teeth. No, I thought that wasn't me. I was down here, on the floor. It didn't make sense. But I could see it. I could remember it. And even if it didn't amount to anything coherent... My computer screen was the only light, and my screensaver was a dark one so only occasional gray light was cast over the lounge room. I was disoriented and tried to pull myself to my feet, having to brace against the couch not to fall over again. Why was I panting? I had just been sleeping. I had no excuse to be tired. No, this made no sense. Something felt wrong, but where was she? That was the strongest thought I had mustered at the time. Where was she? crazy, I know, but these things became clear as I recognized this, and suddenly I thought, no, knew that I wasn't alone. Looking around, I tried to peer into the darkness and inched my way across the room, bumping a coffee table and kept my eyes on the empty middle of the room as I patted the wall for the light switch. The first flash of light imprinted my empty lounge room, but the second showed a shape, too quick quick for me to see. Then the light came on. The vision burned into my eyes, had been... The vision burned into my eyes had been in front of the dark glass sliding door that looked out to my pitch-black balcony. If someone had been standing out there, or even inside, there would be no way to see them. Not when there were black as ink. Wait, black as ink? Why did I just think that? Just as the thought flitted across my mind, I felt a cold, heavy weight press over me, and I swore I could hear an an exhalation of breath just on my neck. It was as if whatever I was, I had... 
imagine was conform it it was as if whatever it was I had imagined was confirming my fear, indicating that yes, I had seen it, and I was right. I was there, just too dark to see. I flipped on all the lights, switched the TV on, the radio, the kettle, and started the washing machine. I needed noise. There could be no shadows, no silence, and I don't know what compelled me, but at the time, all I could think of was warding off this presence. Whatever he was, I thought it was a she. I know now that it was what she was warning me about. Okay, so we're getting into some other... Something's about to happen. It's about to go down. It all made sense to me now. I hurled the pills against the glass door and curled up in the corner of my kitchen, hoarding a box of candles and four torches, two of which weren't working or had near-dead batteries. I had just grabbed whatever I could find, including my butcher's knife. Backed into a corner like this, I could see everything in the room, but it was little comfort. I just watched the sliding door, the black upon black, the figure standing beyond the glass, silent and unmoving. After an hour like this, wide-eyed and panting, I began to calm down, and I, then I extended my senses. I could not feel him. I know that sounds silly, ex- extending my senses like I'm Harry Dresden or something, but you need to understand that at the time, I was not thinking clearly. These figments of my mind were as real to me as anything, and the looping, sc- scatterdash logic had been all clear at the time. It was only after my heart stopped pounding and I began to ache from the cramped space that I began to ta- detach once again. Okay, <laughs> after my heart stopped pounding. I thought you said it stopped beating completely. All right. That, that would mean death. All right. It was only after my heart stopped pounding and I began to ache from the cramped space that I began to detach once again, survey my situation much like I had the imaginary woman clinically, like all this was happening to a character in a story or to a friend or a relative that I admired. I pictured my brother, who I always liked. My brother looked insane. <laughs> and if he did, so did I. I told myself that these two figures did not exist, and I compacted this thought into something solid, driving it to the front of my mind like a roadblock, and stood up. I walked to where I'd thrown the pills, and even with my newfound determination, I looked down from the dark glass. I bent to gather up the pills and return them to the bottle, and then stood and stared into the dark balcony. I shut the curtain and turned away, effectively telling him to talk to the hand. Oh, he's getting sassy. Getting sassy all up in Lovecraft, Lovecraft land. I busied myself with cleaning taking my chaotic, messy apartment and returning it to order, imagining it was my mind, and I did feel slightly better, but I was visited by my neighbor from downstairs at around 7 in the morning. I was pretty embarrassed and apologized, but I felt a little reclusive after this, so didn't go outside anymore. Yeah, not going to do that. I ate sparingly because I didn't want to have to buy food, and I'd stopped calling friends or going to the gym. I'd also stopped taking the pills and neglected to write in my diary. For some reason, I dreaded opening it. What I would find, I don't know, but I wasn't ready. Even if this was just another facet of my growing insanity, it was one I couldn't simply shut the curtain on. I threw the diary in my closet, never questioned why I keep getting fresh ink on my fingertips. After several days of no sleep and not seeing the outside, I finally decided to go to the gym. It was midnight, but it was a, I always went late when no one was around, and it felt good to you know, return to a semblance of my routine. As I got my gym bag together and checked my bike, tires, and iPod, I felt like I was reassembling the order I had scattered. Two hours later, after a silent workout in the empty automated gym, I had almost forgotten about everything. The burning in my muscles was familiar and comforting in its familiarity. The crackle of the cheap speakers playing late-night radio, the click of the big fan that never turned right, <laughs> humming out of the Gatorade machine, it was all so normal and familiar for me. I had been silly, I decided. I would see the doctor tomorrow and life would get back on track. I knew it. 
Pulling the zipper of my gym bag to toss in the water bottle, I froze. The pills were there, resting on my spare clothes. I hadn't packed them. Seeing them sent a sudden wave of bone-deep exhaustion through me. As the world wavered, I saw it. I saw him. It was just a shape in the corner of my eye, gone when I whipped around to look, but now a shape stood in my other periphery just as quick, disappearing when I darted around to see it. He was in here with me. All my prior resolve melted from my mind, and I began to panic as the weariness set in. I backed up from the table, and in my haste, I knocked the bag and chair down, staggering into my bike and almost falling. The only reason I didn't scream when the lights went out was because my throat had closed with my panic. I knew it was there, standing in front of me, and an inch from my face, silent and imposing and possessive. It wanted me. It always had. Finally, I went down, toppling over my bike, landing on my front, looking up at the dark glass doors of the gym, off in the car park, shrouded in the shadow. <sighs> was a figure, barely registering as a woman's silhouette. She cupped her hands and called to me, and while I couldn't hear her, I know she was telling me to run. The rest is a blur. I sprinted down the road, limbs screaming in protest as the strength seeped from them, my vision blurring, ground swinging underneath my feet, causing me to stagger and trip. I was running, frantic to get away, but the shadows catching up to me, enveloping me like the night itself was coming for me. As it closed about me, my strength was bled away. I vaguely recall the blare of a horn, a set of headlights and a sudden burning sensation in my chest, like someone had punched me so hard that my lungs had expelled their air. The world spun about. The road came hard and fast, and I struggled to go on. Figures crowded me, clawing at me, trying to pull me into the darkness, and I was blacking out, fighting to keep my head above the inky blackness. As my last ounce of strength was torn away, all was dark and silent, and I felt him looming over me. It was as, as, it was as if I had been wrapped in dozens of thick blankets, chained up until I was weighted down and dropped into a tank of freezing cold water. It was helplessness, fear, and a screaming, kicking, yet futile desperation to escape. And the whole time, he stood over that tank, silent and satisfied. Ugh, that's dark. I woke up three days later in the hospital. I had fractured ribs, a shattered hip, several broken fingers, and I had almost died from a heart attack. They told me that I had run into traffic and been hit by a car, but when people had tried to help me, I swung at them and staggered into yet another car. <laughs> that one put me in no state to run away anymore, and I just begged them to leave me alone, screaming not to fall asleep. I had been clutching the diary to my chest the entire time, and when they showed the contents to me, I knew I had to get help. There's a certain wisdom in telling when you, <laughs> you're too far gone to help yourself. I haven't yet been able to put into words that I find adequate, but the sanest thing a man could do is admit when he isn't sane. All I know is that I could trust my own mind my own mind no longer. I went willingly, and much lighter, to the mental ward. Oh, I asked that I keep the diary and keep adding to it, not really expecting to be allowed to, but they agreed, and now with the burden of my mental health passed on to someone else, I felt lighter, I guess, like I had a free pass to finally look into that dark glass and see... Just what lurked there, wearing my face. I didn't need to worry about him anymore. That was the doctor's job, right? And what had I seen in that diary had prompted me to submit to these doctors? Each instance of her had been scribbled out with such force the pages had ripped in places. Rabid crisscrosses that clawed her out of the account, tearing her away, and in some places, tentative writings had appeared next to these mad scratchings, too light and thin to read. And as the pages went on, they became fewer and smaller, fainter like the hand that wrote them became weaker. Each page was more dominated by the scribblings until finally a, a full black page ripped and bleeding out into the next page so that it was smudged, smeared, and torn. On this page, I had drawn three figures, all crude, standing in a line. I had drawn so hard that they had been partially imprinted on, onto the following page. 
This continued for dozens of pages. Each faded copy added to, elaborated on, until the figure on the left grew twisted and deformed, and the one on the right shrank and weakened, and the middle figure had simply curled up and cowered. I had used my palm and thumb to mash the wet ink, warping the pictures so that they swirled and were becoming less and less coherent. Just a warped spiral. And on the final page, the spiral became a face. And this face looms over me as I write this. Whether he is real or not, I cannot escape him. And I don't know if anyone can help me. He watches these words form on the pages and he approves. I'm glad he likes it. Maybe he'll let me wake up if I please him. He wants me to tell you. I might not, though. He says you can't help me. The nurse is coming with my pills. Please don't let me sleep long. Please wake me up, doctor. Don't let me sleep long. <laughs> Lovecraftian. That's very Lovecrafty. It gets around. <laughs> I think that's that's um, a proper place to, to end this excursion. Uh, this is Jason Nevermind signing off for the Creepy Podcast and the Vampire on a Pony Network. I appreciate anyone who listens. Uh, I really appreciate your ears and your time and attention. Hopefully you enjoy what's going on here because I'd like to keep doing it. Uh, and also, once again, uh, you can check the web addresses, triple W... Uh, dot soundcloud dot com forward slash four a m s o u n d s four a m sounds uh the bandcamp page is triple w dot d j four a m dot bandcamp dot com uh, i'm also on tune in and stitcher and in plenty of places where you, you get your uh, your podcasts from you know i'm trying to be on a few more of them this year so uh keep your fingers crossed for me uh once again thank you for listening this is jason nevermind signing off uh Hoping I get a chance to talk at you again, uh, you know, sooner than later. Peace out, yeah. 5000G.